Merry Christmas, everyone. This is Kathy Colas Audiobooks, and today we have Episode 11 of The Roadrunner Cafe by Jamie Zernt. The scavenger hunt continues as Carson heads to the library and then the church. In the last pew, he finds a story that has an eerily familiar look. Here we go. The library is too far to bike, so Carson decides to use the ski pass as mom got him to ride the bus. There's a big rack on the front, since a lot of tourists like to bring their bikes up the mountain during the summer. They take the chairlifts up with their bikes, snap pictures at the top, and try not to kill themselves riding back down. Carson tried it once with his dad. Wiley told him to see how long he could go without using his brakes, but it was more fun that way. Carson wasn't very good at the game and would lie about how long he'd lasted. 32 seconds that time, he'd yell, and his dad would smile, his face red from the sun. The memory is so vivid, Carson can almost smell his father's sweat, can almost feel the pulse of him. The bus comes. It's nearly empty. Carson straps his bike on, takes a seat behind the driver, watches as the town rolls by like a dead marble outside the window. He doesn't know quite how to explain it, but something's off about the town. It's too bright, too clean, too happy. He's felt this way for a while now, but he hasn't known exactly why. Even the bus driver seems to have a smile etched into his face, a thing permanently chiseled there by the sun. Before Carson can dwell on this much longer, the library, a small brick building butted up against the post office, comes into view. Carson pulls the cord, and once the bus comes to a stop, the driver says, Remember, Carthage must be destroyed. It sounds like just another joke everybody but Carson is in on. And the way the driver grins at him, all warm and steady and confident, only makes Carson feel that much more uncomfortable. Normally, Carson wouldn't say anything. Normally, Carson would just laugh and mutter something like, Sure, you bet. I don't know what that means, he says, stopping and turning around on the bottom step. The driver nods, the smile retreating just long enough so that Carson feels like he's actually catching a glimpse of the man's real face. And his real face is old and sad and a little scared, maybe. Something a teacher of mine used to say at the end of every class, the driver says. It means don't ever give up. You know, to keep fighting, like the Romans did. Carson doesn't know about any Romans, but he does know something about not giving up. How does it go again? Carthage must be destroyed, the driver says, the smile all there again. I like it. Good, you can have it then. Carson doesn't know what to say to that. People can't own words. But when the bus pulls away, Carson repeats the phrase out loud a few times. He'll have to remember to look up Carthage later. Sounds a little like carnage. Maybe the words were related. His sister was always telling him the roots of things, 
like how bi means two, and that bipolar means there are two polar opposites, and how dad was probably on the south pole of things more often than any of them ever realized. It's been a long time since Carson has actually been inside the library. Mrs. Herman, as always, is there. She doesn't look how librarians are supposed to look. Librarians are supposed to wear glasses and sweaters, be chubby, maybe look like someone's grandma, and shush people all day. But Mrs. Herman wasn't like that. Mrs. Herman looked more like a rancher. She always wore a cowboy hat and jeans, looked like she spent more of her time outside than in. Carson Long, what brings you here? I need to find a book, Carson says quietly. He always gets nervous around Mrs. Herman. He isn't sure why that is. Good enough place for that, I suppose, she says, not even the hint of a smile about her face. And just like that, Carson realizes why he likes her so much. She rarely smiled. When you looked at Mrs. Herman, you saw Mrs. Herman. She helps him locate the book, which they find already sticking out from the shelf just a bit. Heliana's handiwork, no doubt. Carson pulls the book down, immediately spying the piece of paper peeking out of the top and quickly covering it with his hand so as not to draw Mrs. Herman's attention. When Carson is left alone, he studies the book. There's a drawing of a small cafe on the cover. It's nighttime, and all the lights are on inside the cafe. Carson likes that. It looks warm, like his parents' restaurant used to feel. Carson pulls the piece of paper from the book. The first thing you should do now is read the story up until the sticky note. When you get to there, stop and go to church. In the last pew, there will be another note for you. Avashti matey, and all that other nonsense. Carson crumples up the note and begins to read. There's a description of a small town that sounds eerily similar to Crested Butte. Only, instead of a mountain, the town has a cotton mill. It's a long story filled with words Carson doesn't understand. Words like blunderbuss, magpie, pampas, hominy, consumption, wastrel, and quinsy, to name a few. But Carson struggles through the odd words to read about a woman named Miss Amelia, who falls in love with a little hunchbacked man she thinks might be her cousin. She gives everything she has to this hunchback, but the hunchback seems mostly just annoyed with her. Then it turns out that Miss Amelia, who runs the cafe, was once married for ten days to a man named Marvin Macy. This Marvin Macy guy was a real jerk and disappeared for a long time after Miss Amelia said she didn't love him anymore. When he finally returned, it seemed like Marvin Macy somehow knew the hunchback. It also appeared that the hunchback was in love with Marvin Macy, who seemed to be hell-bent on getting revenge on Miss Amelia for not ever really loving him. It was hard to believe his mother loved the book so much, seeing what a soap opera it was. But then, the way the writer described things, even Carson had to put the book down every now and then just to smile. I slept like I was drowned in warm axle grease. It reminded Carson a little of how Gordon spoke. He was always saying funny things like that, things you never hear other people say. Maybe that was why his mother liked it. 
because it was different, something to take her away from Crested Butte. After two bathroom breaks and a lot of quizzical looks from Mrs. Herman, Carson finally manages to read all the way to the sticky note. Heliana, of course, has placed the note just at the point when things are starting to get good. A big fight is brewing between Miss Amelia and Marvin Macy, but Carson does as he's told and checks the book out from Mrs. Herman. He promises he'll come back more often, then stammers a few goodbyes and blushes his way back out into the daylight. Once the jumble of words in his head starts to clear, Carson realizes something. He wants to go home, to his old home, the one with two parents in it. But he's gone this far, he figures he might as well keep going. And who knows, maybe there really would be a big bag of blow pops at the end. He could hope, anyway. At the church, Carson anoints his forehead, out of habit more than anything else, before finding the back pew he used to sit in with his mom. He always had to be on the aisle, the closest he could get possibly to the door. Even during the funeral, he sat with his hand gripping the banister, ready to run at a moment's notice. But that moment never came. Instead, there was a long parade of people bending down into his face and shaking his hand and saying things he couldn't really hear because his father's life was still ringing away in his ears. Carson notices a piece of paper sticking out from one of the prayer books and scoots down the pew. The Salad of the Bad Café. The title is handwritten, but Carson immediately recognizes it as his father's. Seeing it there, in front of him, makes Carson's stomach lurch. Such a simple thing. A nothing thing. But his father's hand had once held the pen that hesitated above this very paper, and with movements his father had learned as a child, movements he'd practiced, and that had become his own, wrote out the words sitting there in front of Carson. It's only then, as Carson is studying the various curves of his father's half-formed letters, like his father had forgotten about them before they were finished, that Carson begins to wonder how Heliana got a hold of it in the first place. Could Georgie have given it to her? And if so, why? Or had Heliana somehow stolen it? Again, Carson feels something like a sickness creeping over him, a vague kind of horror, like a snippet from a bad dream you can't completely remember once you wake up. He gives a shiver, rubbing his hands over his arms, over the fading tattoo there, and begins to read. Marvin Macy leaned back and gave Miss Amelia a hearty slap on the rump a slap very similar to the one he gave her ten years ago on the night they were to consummate their marriage. You might want to take it easy on them hoe cakes. Miss Amelia could feel the blood of the past weeks, lo, the blood of the past ten years, start to rise in her face. It was time. And almost like a secret signal had been passed through the crowd, the customers of the bad cafe seemed to intuitively know it was time, too. The fact that it was seven o'clock just confirmed it for those who may have had any lingering doubts. Yes, the fight was finally on. Marvin Macy and Miss Amelia wasted no time as the crowd flattened their backs to the wall of the cafe in order to give the fighters some room. 
Oh, what a spectacle! Miss Amelia seemed to be channeling some dark force while landing blow after blow on the stunned Marvin Macy's ugly brow. This went on for nearly half an hour, the two circling one another. And then, just when it looked like Marvin Macy would crush Miss Amelia as he charged her, Miss Amelia would deftly step out of the way and land a damning blow to the back of Marvin Macy's disgusting and oily head. It was after one such maneuver, when Miss Amelia had stuck out her hairy leg, that Marvin Macy fell to the floor. Miss Amelia saw at once the opportunity and pounced on his back. The crowd gasped. Surely the fight would be over soon now, with Miss Amelia standing alone in the middle of the cafe as the victor. But what was the hunchback, Cousin Lyman, doing at this juncture in time? Why, he would be gasping too, of course, if his chubby little fingers weren't already crammed into his mouth for gnawing on. Cousin Lyman looked like one filled with the consumption. Had Miss Amelia not been busy choking the life out of her first husband, she would have no doubt offered the hunchback a dose of hominy grits and croup cure. Perhaps the hunchback then sprouted wings from the abomination on his back. Perhaps those wings had always been there and were the sole reason for his hunch. But if so, there was no doubt that those wings belonged to a devil rather than an angel, because what transpired next was as close to pure evil as one will ever see in this lifetime. After letting out something like a war cry, the midget hunchback leapt from the table he was standing upon and seemed to fly across the room, only to land on Miss Amelia's back. Looking back on it later, none of the townspeople seemed able to recall seeing the midget take flight. Yet none could deny it happened either. It must be said, too, that at the exact juncture at which the flying midget came to land on Miss Amelia's back, Marvin Macy was by all accounts a beaten man. There was blood pooling up on the floor from his ravaged face, and some say tears were mingled in with that unholy red. The wastrel was finished, the fight all but over, when Cousin Lyman seemed to fashion a bottle of salad dressing out of thin air, which he then proceeded to uncap and pour over Miss Amelia's face the effect of which was to not only cause her eyes to burn, more or less blinding her, but also to cover her in something akin to oil. And since everyone knows oil is slippery, it must have been this which allowed the eel in her grasp to so easily slither away. Miss Amelia, up until this point, still had no idea what caused her to go blind and slick. It was only when she tried to pull herself up from the floor that she could make out the murky figure of the hunchback, her beloved, standing before her. Even with the vinaigrette burning away at her retinas, she could make out the nasty little smirk only inches from her face. It was perhaps only half a second after the sickening revelation that she felt the first small kick to her jaw, followed in quick succession by at least a dozen more. Within a matter of minutes, the crowd of the bad cafe watched as the near victor was turned into little more than a human puddle. A puddle not even the most recalcitrant child would have the heart to stomp in. And to make matters worse, Marvin Macy wasted no time in exacting his revenge. Never had anyone in the town witnessed such ignoble acts as the relentless thrashing these two creatures gave poor Miss Amelia.
They kicked and punched her right up to the doorway of death, barely stopping short of knocking. That, it would turn out, they would leave to Miss Amelia's own hand. On the counter was one of Miss Amelia's famous salads. People came from as far away as Chiha just to taste the secret dressing Miss Amelia drizzled so lavishly over her greens, almost as if the pouring of the dressing, the grand dripping spectacle of it, was something the customers were paying for too. It was, aside from her famed whiskey, one of the things people in the town held sacred about Miss Amelia and the bad cafe. So when the hunchback slid this salad beside Miss Amelia's haggard and now loblolly face and proceeded to relieve himself over it, it was nothing short of blasphemy. The crowd took another collective gasp as the hunchback's twisted foot nudged the bowl with the now floating lettuce under Miss Amelia's nose. The intent was clear to everyone, including Miss Amelia. As the crowd stood mute, their bodies still seemingly nailed to the wall of the cafe, they watched as Miss Amelia, weak as she now was, pulled herself up to her knees and crawled, bringing the polluted salad along with her to her office. Once the door finally closed, the crowd somehow knew it would never open again by her hand. And indeed, the very next afternoon, Miss Amelia was found hanging from a noose in the middle of her office, the salad left untouched on her desk. Carson set the paper down. His hands are trembling. On the bottom of the page, Heliana has written one final note. Meet me at the address below tonight at ten. All shall be revealed. Everybody in town knows exactly how his father killed himself. They plastered it all over the news. Carson can remember the newscaster mentioning the noose, even going so far as to describe the type of rope his father used. Hemp. Carson doesn't understand why his family still has to go on living in the town. Like his mom changing the name of the restaurant has made any difference. Every time he's there, it feels like a big fiery asteroid is waiting upstairs, pressing down on them, threatening to crush them at any second. He remembers telling Heliana all of this once, how it always felt like his father was still in the house. Carson stands, clutching his father's warped version of the story in his hand, letting the prayer book fall to the floor as he makes his way to the big wooden doors of the church. On his way out, he eyes the bowl of holy water, just barely resisting the urge to send it flying down the aisle. And there you have it. Don't forget to join me on Wednesday for episode 12 of The Roadrunner Cafe by Jamie Zernt. To check out more of my work, go to my website at kathycolas.com. That's C-A-T-H-I-C-O-L-A-S dot com. If you're an author looking to turn your book into an audiobook, email me at kathycolas at gmail.com. Let's talk. And if you like the podcast, please leave a review or share it on social media.